If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be wrapping up our study in Jonah. And just before I uh, start in a word of prayer, um, I just want to let you as a church family know so that we can be praying and supporting these families during this time. Um, there's a couple Christian sympathies that we want to just convey and um, ask that as a church family that you would be supporting these folks in prayer um, over the days and weeks and months to come. So Richard and Kelly Poitras, uh, Richard's mom, passed away um, at the end of this week. Um, and as I was talking to Richard, she um, was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she is home with her Savior, and he is uh, taking comfort in that for sure. And so you can be praying for them. And then Jonathan and Bonnie Densmore, if you'd be praying for their family. Jonathan's father passed away yesterday morning. Um, he was a pastor for many years, and so as Jonathan and I were talking, um, it was just great to hear the legacy that his dad had left, being a preacher of the gospel and being with his Savior now. Uh, the funeral is going to be on Friday in Yarmouth. And so if we would be just praying for these families and encouraging them in any way that we can, let's do that as a family. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive into Scripture this morning. Our loving Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the fact that we can come to you in prayer. Anytime, anywhere, in any circumstances, and you are a God who hears. And you are a God who sees and there's nothing that we're going through that you are not fully aware of and are working in the midst of. We think of Richard, or Richard and Kelly and their family. We think of Jonathan and Bonnie and their family. As each of these families are mourning the loss of a loved one right now, God, we know because your word reminds us and tells us that your Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. He comes to comfort the believers. We know that your Holy Spirit is comforting, comforting these families even now. We ask that you would continue to do that. That you would continue to show yourself strong on their behalf, that they would just be reminded over and over again that you are their strong tower, their refuge, their rock that they can come to in times of trouble. Times of heartache. God, we have the privilege as a church to support these families. Being a shoulder to cry on, being a listening ear, being an encouragement in any way that we can. And one of the best ways that we can encourage these families is by praying for them. So I pray, God, that you would stir our hearts to be praying regularly for them. God, we want to thank you for Just an opportunity this past week of ministry when it comes to water ski camp. The opportunity that we had at water ski camp, Levi and the, uh, the leaders and the staff and the counselors, the opportunities where the gospel was preached, where the word of God was taught, where spiritual conversations were had with the students where unsaved teens were challenged with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the necessity for them to put their faith and trust in him for their salvation. 
where our Christian teens were challenged to live for you faithfully, wholeheartedly. God, as the week went on, there were challenges that came because the enemy was not happy with what was being done there, and yet we were reassured that we serve a God who is bigger than our enemy. And we, got, we pray, God, that you would continue to take the scriptures that were taught to the students at Waterski Camp and that you would use that in their hearts and lives over the weeks and months to come, that you would draw these unbelieving teens to yourself and encourage these saved teens that were there. We thank you for the faithfulness of our leaders in that ministry. We ask your blessing on them in Christ's name. Amen. So we are in Jonah chapter 4. I've personally entitled my message of Jonah for, Jonah, what, what's wrong with you? Because if you've read Jonah chapter 4 before, you, you see that Jonah's got some issues. Um, if you are kind of joining us this morning and you haven't had the privilege of working through the other chapters in Jonah with us, you're kind of coming in at the end of the story and uh, you've missed some of the things that we've worked through and so I wanted to kind of recap a little bit because we started off the book of Jonah by focusing on the fact that Jonah had an issue with self-righteousness. We're told from the very beginning of Jonah that God as, uh, comes to Jonah as, as one of his prophets and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to them because their sin has come before me. Their sin was so evident that not that God didn't already know about it, but that it was so obvious and so stark that, that God was going to send Jonah, his prophet, to preach against that city because of their sin. And Jonah wasn't interested in doing that. And so he fled from God as if he thought that he was going to be able to escape God. And part of it was because you can kind of see throughout Jonah that he really didn't believe that they should even have that privilege of having that message preached to them. And you can see that even more in this particular chapter as he responds to God's grace and mercy towards the Ninevites. But we talked about self-righteousness in the very first chapter, and I just want to kind of remind us of three characteristics of self-righteous people because it may draw you back to what we were talking about when it came to Jonah. First of all, Number one, self-righteous people have a hard time extending grace and mercy towards other people, though it, they expect it themselves. Jonah was like that. Jonah was more than happy to have grace and mercy extended to him. He had a relationship with God. He knew God. God had shown him grace and mercy, and he was quite satisfied with that, but he was certainly not satisfied with that coming to the Ninevites. Number two, self-righteous people present themselves as the standard by which things should be evaluated. I believe that we'll see that a little bit more as we talk through this last chapter of Jonah. And then thirdly, they judge others and assume that God will measure up to their standard as they judge others. And again, I think that we will conclude this morning with seeing that this was an issue that Jonah had. And yet, 
As Jonah sought to flee from God, God deals with Jonah. And in the midst of dealing with Jonah, we see Gentile sailors come to faith in God through that, and yet Jonah was tossed overboard so that the seas would be calm, and God orchestrates and ordains a giant fish to come and swallow Jonah so that Jonah has his heart worked on. So in that fish's belly, as Jonah reflects on the fact that he almost died in the sea and that he's there now and he's expecting to not make it, that he repents of his sin and God forgives him and God allows the fish to cough, cough him up on the, on the dry land again. And then God calls Jonah a second time and Jonah obeys God. And Jonah preaches an eight-word, seven-word message to the Ninevites and then they repent of their sin and they trust God and God relents of the disaster that he was going to bring on them. And then we come to Jonah chapter 4. And there are, three, there are two kind of points. If you write any notes down, I encourage you, if you mark in your Bibles, you may want to mark in them. There's two main points that I just want to point out. They're pretty obvious. We're going to look at Jonah's anger at God first. And secondly, we're going to look at God's gracious response to Jonah. Stark contrast right there between the, the, the human being, Jonah, and God. Jonah's angry at God. God continues to be gracious. There's a few other things that I'm going to point out as we work through, and you may want to mark them in your Bible or on your notes as we go. But let's just dive right in. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast or faithful love, the one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. I'm going to stop there for a second because this is point number one. Joan is angry with God. I love how Youngblood states it in his commentary. He says, the event that calmed God's wrath was the same event that provoked Jonah's wrath. What's the event? The event is that the message was preached to the Ninevites. The Ninevites repented of their sin, and God delivered them from the judgment that he was going to bring on them. The previous chapter, it tells us at the very end that God relented because of their repentance from the disaster that he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. God demonstrated grace and mercy to the Ninevites, and this angered Noah. It says he was greatly displeased. It says that he became furious. Just so that you understand, the phrase in in my translation in English, greatly displeased, is actually the Hebrew word for evil. It's the same word that's used down in verse 6 when it says that God rescued him, Jonah, from his trouble. It's the same Hebrew word that is used of evil of the Ninevites in Jonah 3.10 where it says that they had turned from their evil ways. It's the same word that's used to describe their evil ways in Jonah uh, chapter 3 
verse 8, where the Ninevites actually said, each must turn from his evil ways, from his wrongdoing. It's the same word that's used for trouble in Jonah chapter 1, in verses 7 and 8. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble that we're in. That was the sailors commenting. And it says, tell us who is to blame for this trouble. It's the same word, evil. It's translated trouble for us. And then lastly, in Jonah 1, verse 2, talks about the Ninevites' evil and the fact that God sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites because of it. Why am I pointing that out? Because really, if we are going to be completely accurate, instead of saying Jonah was greatly displeased with the Lord, we really should be saying that Jonah thought that what God was doing was evil. Jonah was so angry that he's like, God, you're doing wrong in sparing the Ninevites. When we're thinking about a self-righteous person, we have to go back to the fact that Jonah, a human being, has the gall to say that God is wrong and evil in what it is that he did. Why? Because Jonah thinks he's the standard. Jonah judges others and assumes that God will measure up to his standard that he's concocted in his mind. And because of that, he is angry. It says in verse 1 that he became furious. I like that translation. Some translations would say he was greatly displeased. I think that that really downplays what's going on. The Hebrew word actually used there is hot. He was so angry, he was boiling at God. So we use the English word furious. He was, he was upset, to say the least. Because God had spared the Ninevites. I believe that you see this self-righteousness, which ultimately is pride when it comes to, to Jonah, in the way that he justified what he did as we were told about it in Jonah chapter 1. He goes on to say this to the Lord. He says, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I, I knew you were going to spare them. I knew that you were going to be gracious towards them. That's why I ran away. As if somehow he can justify his disobedience to the Lord. He's like, no, this, this is why I was totally justified in why I did this. Because you're going to spare these wicked people and that's wrong. In my translation, the words I, me, and my are used eight times in three verses. As far as Jonah's concerned, it's all about Jonah. I thought, while well, I was still in my country. That's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were gracious, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, one who relents and sends disaster. Now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, there's some nuance here. It's easy for us to pick on Jonah, but... Jonah is just an example of us to us. Because we can look back, and you, can, you might be asking the, yourself the question, well, hold on, didn't Jonah repent of his sin in, in chapter 2? Didn't God spare him? Either dying in the ocean or dying in the fish's belly. Didn't, 
didn't he make things right with God, and that's why God gave him that, uh, that opportunity again? Yes. Jonah repented of his sin. I, as I studied Jonah chapter 2, I firmly believe that he was sincere in his repentance. But Jonah's an example to us about ourselves. Jonah still struggled with this issue of self-righteousness. This was still a stronghold in Jonah's life. Jonah, though he experienced some victory, and he had an opportunity to go and preach a message to the Ninevites and see a great thing happen in Nineveh, he still wrestled with this sin. He still found himself back in it again. How many of us have a sin that is a stronghold in our lives, and though we repent of it and we confess it, we find ourselves back in it at times? We still fight with it because in our flesh, our sinful flesh, we wrestle with these things. We struggle with these things. Before we come too hard on them, I think that we need to actually pay attention to what we struggle with, which begs the question, what sin is a stronghold in your life? What sin is a stronghold in my life? I have to say that as I was studying this and kind of some of the circumstances that I've walked through through the course of the week, I was confronted and God really hit me on the fact that I lack grace with people at times. And those closest with me, I'm not very gracious. Yet I expect everybody to be gracious towards me. Don't we have a problem with that at times? For Jonah, it was self-righteousness and pride. What's yours? What's that sin that seems to always get a foot in the door for you? What areas of your life do you need, you need to yield completely to the Lord? It's easy for us to kind of hone in on Jonah's problem and say, look at what, what's wrong with you, Jonah? And not ask ourselves the question, hey, Dave, what's wrong with you? What is it that I need to give to the Lord completely? And what do I need to continually give to the Lord that I wrestle with? It's easy to pick on Jonah, but we need to pay attention to ourselves. I do have to point out, though, that Jonah does use God's words against him. And this is a very dangerous place to be, and I think in his self-righteousness, in his pride, he was in a very, very dangerous place. He actually uses this statement. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. Studied from a few different commentaries through the course of this week, and all of them said the same thing, that likely Jonah was dipping back to Exodus chapter 36, excuse me, 32 to 34, when he was talking about God's compassion and his grace. And it's really, in a sense, Jonah throwing God's own word back at him. Hey, God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were going to spare these people. And it, throwing back at God his own character as if that's a problem. How many times have we justified our actions with the, word, with the words of Scripture or tried to justify our actions? We don't really do it, but we try. How many times have we thrown back at God something from his own word? It's a dangerous place to be. 
Why do I think that? Well, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, the devil used the same tactic. He used the word of God to attack or to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, then the devil took him to a high, the high, excuse me, the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels concerning uh, orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And then this is Jesus' response. Satan quoted scripture to try to use it to his own means and own ends. And Jesus told him, as it is written, or it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. To me, when I look at the way Jonah's interacting with God, I'm thinking, wow, he's in a very dangerous place. Taking the words of God and God's own character and throwing it back at him. And I think of Jesus' response to the devil, do not test the Lord your God. It's a dangerous spot. And God would have been completely just in judging Jonah right then and there for his insolent behavior. And yet, we see God respond graciously with Jonah. So number two, God's gracious response to Jonah, even in his self-righteousness, even in his disobedience, even in his anger towards God, what does God do? Verse 4, it says this, then, then the Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? See, God asks three questions of Jonah to try to help Jonah see that he is sinful and that he needs to, to, to make things right with him, so, with God. He asks these questions to try to get Jonah to think through where he's at in his sinfulness. He says, is it right for you to be angry? First question, really what God's saying is this, Jonah, are you really right and I'm wrong, or am I right and you're wrong? Who's right here? Jonah, think about who you are and think about who I am and think about this situation. Who's, who's actually operating rightly here? One commentary writer in this passage pointed out a verse in, in Romans 3, and the truth of the verse works even in the passage with Jonah, even though Paul's using it to talk about something different. But Paul says these words in Romans 3, verse 4. He says, let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. At the end of the day, God's true, and Jonah's wrong. And God says, are you right to be angry about this? Or am I right to spare these people? Question number one. But let's see Jonah's response to this. Jonah actually does three things that really are major mistakes from Jonah. You see it in verse five. You see all three of them really in, the, in, in verse five. It says this, Jonah left the city found a place east of it, made himself a shelter, and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Three things. First, Jonah quit. Think about what's going on or what just happened. Jonah preached to the Ninevites. The Ninevites repented of their sin. God spared them. 
Jonah, as God's prophet, had a wonderful opportunity to spend time in that city and say, hey folks, now that you've repented of your sin and you have a relationship with God, let me tell you all about this God. Let me help you to grow in your relationship with God. Let me tell you the commands that he's given to us as the children of Israel. Let me help you understand how you're supposed to live faithfully for God. You kind of wonder as you read this passage of Scripture and what opportunity Jonah could have had with these people. And then you find out later on in the book of Nahum that God is going to pronounce judgment on Nineveh once again. And he's going to carry it out because the, the, the Ninevites had moved from this place of repentance and reliance on God back to their wickedness and their evilness generations down the road. And God has to judge them. And you kind of wonder whether or not if Jonah hadn't given up on the Ninevites. He hadn't quit in his responsibility for God. If he hadn't been so angry about God's response to the Ninevites, maybe the Ninevites would have gone generations and generations further in their faithfulness to God before they moved away from the Lord and sinned against him to the point where he had to judge them. But instead he left the city, he quit. Second thing he did, he made himself a shelter, he isolated himself. Think through that for a second. Was there not a place in Nineveh, do you think, that Jonah could have hunkered down for a bit? Think of ourselves when we run from God, when we decide that we would rather rest in our sin, play around in our sin, and not do what God calls us to do. What do we do? We tend to cut ourselves off from those that might speak into our life the truth of Scripture. Maybe we take a break from coming to church. Maybe we stop going to Bible study. Maybe we stop reading our Bible. Maybe we don't hang around with our Christian friends as much because I certainly don't want somebody to point out to me as an act of accountability where I might be going wrong. We isolate ourselves. He isolated himself in his little shelter and then he sat in the shade to see what would happen. He became a spectator. Sat back to watch what God was going to do. Now, in fairness to the passage, Jonah's hoping, I believe, that God is going to change his mind, come to his senses, and do what Jonah thinks that he should do. If you look at it, He's voiced his anger with God. God's asked him a question. But he honestly thinks that maybe God's going to change his mind. Maybe God's going to finally rain down fire and brimstone on, on these people. If he didn't really think that, why would he sit outside the city and wait to see what God was going to do? He already knows what God chose to do. He relented of the disaster. He spared the Ninevites. He showered them with grace and mercy. Oftentimes, isn't that the case? We wait to see if God's going to come to his senses and do what we think he should do. What an arrogant place that is to be. But I don't think that we're immune from it either. And then we see God's sovereign hand in guiding him back. 
or as God desires to guide him back. It says, then God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah's head to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Same Hebrew word as evil. God knew that if he sat outside in that sweltering heat that eventually that was going to be a real problem for Jonah. And Jonah, or God in his grace, decides that he's going to provide this plant to shade Jonah, hoping, wanting Jonah to come to his senses, to repent of his sin, to come back and see that God did what was right. God demonstrates his grace and his mercy towards Jonah in providing this plant. There's no reason why that plant should have grown there except that God appointed it. As God appointed the fish, as God appointed the storm, early on in Jonah, God is sovereign all over all of this. And you look at Jonah's response here. The pettiness of Jonah begins to take shape here because you see Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. He wasn't greatly pleased with God's mercy and grace towards the Ninevites, but he was greatly pleased about a plant came up and shaded him. We see the selfishness of Jonah here. He's only concerned about himself. How often do we wrestle with that? We're greatly pleased when things go our way. But we sometimes struggle when God is gracious towards somebody else. By the way, this is the only place in the, all of the story of Jonah where he was pleased about anything. Think about that. Kind of how pathetic that is. He, he's pleased about a plant growing up to give him shade, but he's not pleased about anything else. And God does this so that he can be teaching Jonah a lesson. A lesson. Why? Because it says in verse 7, when Dawn came the next day, God appointed, because God is sovereign over all of his creation, he appointed the plant to grow up, he appointed a worm to attack the plant, and it withered. God trying help, to help Jonah see that he is in control of all things, he knows what's best. He's going to make the decisions, because he's sovereign. He is the sovereign God. And as the sun was rising, God, what did he do? Appoint a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head. So that, uh, so much that he, was, he almost fainted and he wanted to die. Instead, excuse me, he said, it's better for me to die than to live. He was so miserable, he's just like, oh, it would just be better if this was all done with. I don't know about you if you've ever struggled with this or not, and I don't know if Jonah really is coming to grips with his sin because we don't see any sort of statement from Jonah where we see him come around to what God's trying to teach him. But have we ever been in circumstances where we've been just so discouraged and despondent that we've said, you know what, it'd just be better if I wasn't born? Sometimes that's sin in our lives and we're fully aware of that sin and it come, brings us to this place where we're just like, God, it, the weight of this sin, the, the, the shame of it, the guilt of it, what I'm experiencing of it is just so heavy that, you know what, it's, as David described, it's like my bones are breaking. He experienced that. But sometimes it's external circumstances that are outside of our control that 
are just weighing us down and beating us down so much that we were just we would just say, you know, I just it, it would be so much better if I just hadn't been born. That my only way out of this is not being alive anymore. Jonah, excuse me, Job struggled with that. The things that happened in his life, the loss of possessions, the loss of his family, the loss of his health, and he sat there in sackcloth and ashes, and he just said, it would be better if I was never born, because he's so discouraged. Jonah here, being beat down by the sun, worn out, experiencing these troubles, and he says, you know what, it would just be better if I wasn't even alive. I don't know about you, but I'm at that point in this passage, I'm just like, Jonah, just cry out to the Lord. Jonah, just, just run back to the Lord. He, he's desiring to show you grace and mercy as he's shown it to you before, as he's shown the Ninevites. He wants you to understand his character, his love. God wants you to be obedient, Jonah. Please go back. And yet, He's going to hold fast to his self-righteousness. It says that God asked Jonah a second question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? See, Jonah was angry because the plant withered and it shows his pettiness. He was angry that God spared the Ninevites. He's angry that the plant died. He's angry at God about everything. And look at what his response is. Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. It says this in verse 10. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. Then God asked this third question. Look at God's character here, he says. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well, excuse me, as well as many animals. God says, Jonah, isn't it, am I not allowed to care for my creation? God recognized the sanctity of human life when Jonah would not. God created these people. God created man. Scripture tells us that he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. A living being to have a personal relationship with him. We are told that in the early Chapters of Genesis before sin entered the picture that, that, that Adam walked with God. In the cool of the day, they had an intimate, close, personal relationship. This is what God desired for mankind to have, is a close, intimate, personal relationship with him as a creator. Man's the one that messed that up. Man's the one that rebelled against God and sinned against God. And yet God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he was going to send a deliverer, one who was going to save people from their sins. Adam and Eve trusted in that. Seth trusted in that. Abraham trusted in that. Noah trusted in that. 
early in Genesis, we're told about a, a character named Enoch. It says that Enoch walked with God and then he was not. He had such a close personal relationship with God that God decided that he wasn't even going to let Enoch see death. He was just going to translate him into heaven. That's the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with him, a close personal relationship with him. God wanted the Ninevites to have a close personal relationship with him. God wants, wanted Jonah to have a close personal relationship with him, and he expresses that love for people when he says, am I not to care about the great city of Nineveh? John 4, uh, 1 John 4, verse 10, a very familiar passage to so many of us, and I shared this with the students at water ski camp this week. Reminds us of what love looks like. Let me read this, starting in verse 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consisted in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's God's love. In God's love, he shows his grace towards us by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. I thought about First John, or John chapter 1. When John is describing Jesus coming, the Word made flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, ex we observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But then I thought of this verse in, first, or in John 1, 16. It says, Indeed, we all have received grace upon grace from His fullness. Think about how, many, how much grace God has demonstrated to you. Grace upon grace. Think of the mercy that God has demonstrated to you over and over and over again. Do we not want that grace and mercy to be experienced by those around us in this world? May we not be so self-righteous that we have no love for other human beings that we would rather see them judged by a holy God for their sin instead of giving them the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the opportunity to trust Jesus for their salvation, to receive the grace and mercy that God desires to share to them. I think of those that scorn the fact that Jesus' second coming is delayed, that Peter talks about where they talk about, well, things are just progressing the way that they've always done. And then Peter says this, do not look over, overlook this one fact that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Why is God delaying in, the second, in his return? The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all come to repentance. That's, the, that's God's desire, is that all would come to repentance. Have we forgotten the grace and mercy that God has shown towards us? Are we struggling with being the standard when we're really not, but we expect God to measure up to our standard instead of recognizing God for who he is? May we be active in confessing our sin to the Lord 
breaking down those strongholds in our lives or, or allowing the Holy Spirit to break those strongholds down in our lives. That we would be so obedient and in tune with the Lord that our hearts would break when anybody would die, never having the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we love people the way that God loves people, seeing them as people made in his image who need to hear the gospel so that they would not die and go to a Christless eternity in hell.